0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 306, Banking on the Crisis, how to turn financial turmoil into your opportunity. Wait a minute, you didn't know? We had a YouTube channel? That's right, we put content that we don't put anywhere else on YouTube, and you need to see it to believe it. So be sure to follow, like, and subscribe our channel so you won't miss a thing. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode. You know, while banks are getting all the headlines, there's a much larger crisis going on than the current banking crisis that we've been experiencing in the spring and as we get into the summer here. So to get some context, let's get some stats out on the table. First of all, federally insured banks across the country have about $18 to $20 trillion in banking deposit assets. This means almost half of the assets in banks across this country are not FDIC insured, meaning the money in those accounts are over the limit of $250,000, the amount of coverage provided by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's over half of all bank deposits. Now, recently, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has assured the American public that making depositors whole who are over the $250,000 limit would be done on a case by case circumstance with priority given to banks that are systemically important to the banking system. Her words. Uh, So, this is in essence about 10 banks or so that are systemically important out of the 4,200 banks across the country. So, as you're maybe whittling through what your thoughts are on this current banking debacle going on. If you're, like many Americans, have your banking accounts and checking accounts with small to medium-sized regional banks, and maybe you carry more than $250,000 in your bank balance, maybe for business that you have or operating expenses, there is a serious incentive for you to move to one of these mega banks to make sure that your cash is protected which is I'm sure what many mega banks love to hear you know the more they can hoover up smaller banks and all of the cash within them and cut out the small credit unions and mid-sized regional banks the more these mega banks can accumulate power but like I said at the beginning banks as we know them are not at the center of this real impending crisis The real danger comes from the non-bank institutions. Uh, These non-bank institutions are essentially financial firms other than banks that provide all sorts of financial services, including lending to households and businesses and more. Non-bank banks, which are also known as shadow banks, are financial intermediaries that engage in banking activities but are not regulated as traditional banks. So these might include pension funds, mutual funds, peer-to-peer lending platforms, even high-risk hedge funds. Okay, so the according to the Financial Stability Board, a group of global non-bank banks hold about $239 trillion on their books across the world. That has to be said again. I mean, that's a massive number, $239 trillion of uninsured assets. So when you add up all of the accounts on these shadow bank balance sheets, that's almost half of the entire world's assets that has no insurance and is not technically part of a bank balance. So if the institution blows up overnight, no one's there to kind of rescue them or or bail out the depositors. Think of it this way. If the entire world was a house, it'd be like saying half of our house is not covered by fire insurance. Is that a risk? Well, you bet it is. So, what is this shadow banking system? And what are they doing if they're taking up half of the world's assets and have no protection? Well, they're making loans to riskier borrowers without the same oversight and transparency as typical banks would have. These institutions are adding some significant risks and fragility to the world economy. So, there's a real lack of regulation and oversight. And since they're so interconnected with the traditional financial system they bring a lot of increased systemic risk you know it's sort of like matter and dark matter if you're kind of a geek for space stuff uh, this unseen dark matter could have a big impact on the real world and or or in this case the non-banks the shadow banks could have a significant impact if they fail that would have dramatic implications for the traditional mom and pop bank down the street if they fail it would even trigger maybe a chain reaction Of financial losses and contagion that could spread throughout the entire world economy and with this balance of over 239 trillion dollars it would be virtually impossible to control and would likely cause a global calamity political upheaval and even more so we're all experiencing these unprecedented times that's a word i keep hearing all the time unprecedented it's important to realize that banks through it all have survived. So there is some significant hope here, and please hang with me. I know I'm painting a maybe a dark picture, but there's some big opportunity here for those that are willing to see it and hear it. So one of my favorite books that I've read in the last few years is a book by David Graeber called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. What a title! Now, I don't agree with everything that David concludes in this book, but I loved reading the history of banking and why it, in my estimation is the most profitable enterprise in all of human history. Think about that for a minute. Debt for 5,000 years. How much pain, misery has that four-letter word debt caused the human race? And at the same time, someone's liability is someone else's asset. So how much wealth has that four-letter word debt created for those that truly understood its power? Isn't that power increasing now to the tune of 239 trillion dollars? And aren't banking crises becoming more and more common? Didn't we just have a banking crisis in 2008? And here we are now, just a few years later, going through it all over again. Before that, didn't we have the Asian financial crisis in 1997? You know, caused by a combination of factors including excessive borrowing, currency speculation. Sound familiar? And before that, the savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s, where over a thousand savings and loans institutions failed. And before that, Bretton Woods system and the collapse of in 1971, when the U.S. fully decoupled the dollar from gold, and in essence, defaulted on all of the world expecting to be paid back in gold-backed dollars. And of course, before that, the granddaddy of them all, the Great Depression of the 1930s. Now, officially, the Federal Reserve was meant to calm these choppy waters. But as it happened, these banking crises cycles continue. In fact, one begins to wonder if the banking crisis, like the one we're living through today, is either inevitable or on purpose. Many banks are positioned to profit from the current consolidation of banks getting hoovered up by these megabanks, specifically the largest banks that have the most power. So we're already seeing the biggest banks gobble up the banks that are failing. So the not-your-average Joe on the street, like you guys, like me, we were wondering, well, hey, what is it that they're doing that's so bad? Why do they keep getting us in trouble, all this banking trouble, whether it's on accident or on purpose? What is the exact issue with banks today? Dr. Richard A. Werner, he's a professor of economics at the University of Oxford. He examined this idea this concept one of the core issues of typical banking practices is something called the fractional reserve banking practice and in an article he wrote over 10 years ago it still holds exactly true today so he says that through credit creation banks lend out more money than they have on hand hoping that not every borrower defaults and hoping that not every depositor comes to collect their deposits all at once that's the general hope, and strategy of most banks. So this professor, his article presents this empirical evidence. This is not, you know, uh, tinfoil hat stuff. This is true, verifiable empirical evidence from Japan in his example that supports this idea that banks create money out of nothing, out of nothing, his words, and how it has had significant implications for monetary policy and stability in the Japanese economy, but here in the U.S. and beyond to the world economy. So let's get into this. What is fractional reserve banking? Well, essentially, through a process called fractional reserve banking, banks are allowed to create money out of nothing through their interactions with customers, with borrowers, with depositors, that sort of thing. So fractional reserve banking is a system where banks keep only a fraction of their deposits in reserve and then lend out the rest to borrowers. So for example, if a bank has $100 of your money, you deposit it this morning, It may only be required to keep $10 in reserve and then can loan out to me, if I need a loan, up to 90 of your dollars to me. So this allows banks essentially to create money out of thin air because they're able to say, if you were to log into your bank balance, you would see your balance of $100. But if I look at my bank balance, I'll see that they deposited $90 from the loan that they gave me into my bank account. So what was once $100 has become now $190. And that's just the first transaction. Because remember, they put the money in my bank account. And what do I see? I see $90 in my bank account. Well, what do they have now? They have $90 now to loan out again. Okay? So it just continuously creates money out of nothing. And they're able to lend out more money than they actually have on hand. What does all this mean? Well, the impact of fractional reserve banking on the world economy can be huge. When banks create new loans, they're injecting new money into the economy, which essentially stimulates economic growth, increasing the money supply. That's the amount of money sloshing around in all of our bank accounts and checking accounts. So this is because when a bank lends out money, the borrower deposits it into another bank account, and then that bank can then lend out a portion of that money, which creates a cycle now of lending and deposit creation over and over and over again. So if $1,000 is deposited into a bank, and then the bank is able to lend out 90% of that deposit, it goes in as a bank loan of $900 into somebody else's bank account, with only leaving $100 on reserve at the vault. Now, if somebody borrows $900 and deposits it into another bank, that bank can lend out 90% of that deposit, which would be $810, the remaining $90, of course, being held as reserve. So this process can continue as long as people keep borrowing and depositing money. Each time, the bank can lend out 90% of the deposit, hold the remaining 10% as reserve, and this means that for every $1,000 that you, you, yes you, have in your bank account, the bank has created, out of nothing, roughly $10,000. Holy smokes, right? You can see why this becomes a problem. Fractional reserve banking has the potential... To make our financial system much more fragile by stretching the monetary base that's the fancy word here for the amount of money floating around out there beyond what's literally out there by allowing banks to loan out money they don't actually have through the process of fractional reserve banking you can see a situation where the banking system becomes essentially a house of cards when people begin to withdraw money As a big group, like en masse, if they're running on the bank, the banks are unable to meet those demands and the system can quickly collapse. This is the kind of fragility which is a major danger to our financial system. And it's one of the reasons why it's critical that we keep a close watch on the banking industry regulated effectively and keep an eye on how much they're allowed to do fractional reserve banking. Now, most people don't realize that during COVID, the reserves actually went below 10%, well below 10% in terms of how much banks were allowed to keep on hand the less they have to keep on hand the more they can loan out and the more fragile this banking system becomes so is it possibly related to why we're seeing so many banks fail today the lowering of that reserve requirement the raising of interest rates which caused a lot of the bank balance bonds to collapse in value you bet you bet it is of course uh, it can be a very risky proposition to do fractional reserve banking If too many people or businesses default on their loans, banks can suffer losses, and there may not be enough reserves to cover those losses. It can lead to a banking crisis, a contraction in the money supply, which has a negative impact on economic growth. Now, to speak to the other side of this, of course, some people see fractional reserve banking as a positive because it allows us to lend more money out to people. But are we really lending money to people if we don't actually have it to lend? And with such low interest rates that we've had over the last 40 years, and as a result of the grand pappy of all banks, the Federal Reserve, lowering those interest rates, aren't we encouraged under such low interest rate environments? Aren't we encouraged to loan money out to risk our bets to get a higher rate of return, but put that money into more speculative investments and poor investment decisions as a result of having such low savings interest rates on our bank accounts? Okay. So that's all fine and good. Great theory. You know, I hope that you found some interest in the fractional reserve banking system. But what does all this have to do with you? And how can you bank on the crisis? How can you benefit from this current economic malaise that many banks are having to go through right now? Well, first of all, if you're ready to opt out of this madness, life insurance companies do not use fractional reserve banking as a practice with their funds. This is because they're in different businesses than banks. You know, banks accept deposits and they make loans. That's the business they're in. Some people open a business selling t shirts or lemonade, other people open a business and sell debt. That's the product that banks sell. And that's why we have thousands of banks with wonderful, beautiful buildings in our downtowns and our cities here, and why they've been the most profitable business for thousands of years, because they sell the most profitable product, debt. On, in contrast, life insurance companies are in a different business altogether. Their job is to make good on a promise to pay out death claims and guaranteed growth on the cash value. That is the business they are in. So life insurance companies are going to thereby invest for the long term, over a lifetime, this means they have a different time horizon than, say, your typical bank. It also means that they have to have a certain level of reserved cash so that they can meet future obligations to policyholders. So unlike banks, life insurance companies do not lend out multiples of money that they don't even have on reserve. Since unlike a bank, if you die, your family gets way more than the cash value you have in your policy. Think about it. The worst thing to a banker is a bank withdrawal. That's the worst thing that can happen to a banker is to see you withdraw all your money. This is because the party is over. Not only can they not gamble with your money, if you had let's say $50,000 in a cash savings account and you withdrew all your money, $50,000, now they can no longer play around with $500,000 because of fractional reserve banking. They, They have to limit the loans they lend out and that Cuts into their profits. So that's a sad day when you withdraw your money out of the banking uh, system and out of your savings account. On the other hand, a life insurance company might show you that you have a $50,000 cash value and maybe you have a $500,000 death benefit. Remember, there's that death benefit out there. So if you cash out or surrender or withdraw all the money out of your policy, similar to withdrawing from the bank, that's like the best day in the world for a life insurance company. Again, think about it for a minute. You're receiving a $50,000 lump sum, and you're telling the insurance company that they are off the hook for paying your family $500,000 should you pass away tomorrow. What a relief to them. In fact, this just goes to show why the policy grows on a guaranteed basis as well. Some people wonder, well, Mark, how can cash value and life insurance grow guaranteed? Where, what, what in life is guaranteed? But each and every year, no matter what the stock market is doing, you're getting a year older. That's the guarantee. Time marches on. Each year, as you age, you become more likely to kick the bucket. Me too, by the way. And that $500,000 death benefit is coming at the insurance company like a freight train. So, they would rather increase your cash value from $50,000 to, say, $60,000 this year, sweetening the deal, hoping that you take it, take that deal, so that the family doesn't get that big fat check should you pass away next year. Because once you die, they're legally obligated to pay that 500 grand to your family. So all of this, all of this, is why life insurance companies are not allowed to lend out large multiples of the amount of money that they hold on reserve. They're not allowed to create money through the process of fractional reserve banking or the lending process. Regulators, third-party analysts are regularly checking the books. Of these insurance companies to make sure that they're not you know messing around and doing funny business with fractional reserve banking to kind of summarize a lot of this if you don't want to participate in this banking crisis or contribute to the problem i recommend you look into life insurance as an asset class and a place to park your savings every dollar you have at the local bank or the mega bank as is more and more the case these days is contributing to the problem You may see yourself as an outside observer just checking the news, hearing about Silicon Valley Bank or one of these other banks that recently failed, but nothing could be farther from the truth. We're all part of the problem that we're seeing on the evening news. Every single dollar in your checking account, in your savings account, is a vote for what kind of a banking system you want in this world. So what your dollars go to are where your votes go to. So what kind of banking system are you voting for with your dollars? Are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Now, as I say that, I will also quickly add, I still have a regular checking account, certainly. I'm not saying we're totally removing ourselves from this imperfect banking system, but the more money I keep at somebody else's bank, it incentivizes them to loan it out and create more havoc. So until my life insurance policy has a debit card, and by the way, I hope it never does, I still at least need one bank to be open. So looking for banks that have healthier practices that keep full reserve requirements are really of interest to me. I've been researching this recently. For example, certain banks are looking into full reserve banking, which would be a really cool, interesting solution to some of the inherent risks that are present with fractional reserve banking practices. And this would mean the bank would be required by its charter to maintain 100% reserves on their deposits. Which would mean that the bank would have a lot more safety, provide better assurance than I think even FDIC could offer. But it would also solve the problem of bank runs. Simply, you could just walk into your bank, not run, but walk into your bank and still get all your money if you ever wanted it, since fractional reserve banking guarantees that there will always be cash available to meet demands. And bank runs would just simply cease to exist. That would make the banking system much healthier. Reduced risk of bank failure would have a lot of really cool implications, like it would create a more stable financial system across the world. It would reduce the risk of government interventions or large scale taxpayer bailouts. I think, on the other side of things, without fractional reserve banking, it would mean lower amounts of money available for borrowing. But banks would still be able to loan out all the money that was set to a timed deposit. You know, I'm talking about your CD or your savings bond or any other timed deposit. And of course, there would be other institutions that would still be able to offer loans like private lending, which has existed since the banking system was even invented. Private lending has been something that's been around for thousands of years. So now's a chance to dream for a little bit. What would the world look like if even just 10% of the population adopted Bank on Yourself and chose a bank that offered full reserve banking practices? This could lead, I think, to a decreased level of stress, anxiety, emotional turmoil among Americans and Canadians and anybody else who's contributing to these, as they would be less worried about losing their savings due to some bank madness on Wall Street or anywhere else. In terms of credit cards and mortgage industries, I think full reserve banking and and bank on yourself would lead to less availability of credit and higher interest rates, as banks would have less ability to make profits through lending. So that's true. You'd have a higher mortgage rate, probably. However, this could also lead, I think, to more responsible lending practices, and banks wouldn't be able to lend money to people who don't have a job, no income, that sort of thing, leading to fewer defaults and foreclosures. Similarly, with bank-on-yourself-type policies, if you are your own source of financing and you need to buy a car You don't need an auto loan in the first place. So you can bypass those higher interest rates on your credit cards, car loans, even your mortgage by using your policy as your capital source instead of some other bank. So in the long run, reducing debt levels could lead to lower divorce rates. I think it would improve our mental health outcomes for individuals and families. As since financial stress is like a major contributor to divorce, depression, suicide, Guys, this has major implications. Full reserve banking and bank-on-yourself-type whole life policies, I think, would also lead to changes in public attitudes toward debt. It would encourage people greater financial responsibility. It would reduce their reliance on banks, credit cards, finance companies. I think overall this would have a major positive impact on our society. People's stress levels, their therapy bills, what might this do to the relationship between parents and children? If parents aren't working to satisfy the banker's monthly payment, might they be able to spend more time at home as a family? Less anxiety and stress, I think, even would lower the suicide rate and increase other positive outcomes in our society. So the question is, will this happen? Not as long as banks are profiting from the fractional reserve banking system. Banks, credit cards, finance companies all have a stake in this current system the way it's built today. People are profiting richly, and it's difficult to convince someone of something when their salary is dependent on them not being convinced, as the old saying goes. And with the bank lobby so integrated into Congress, it doesn't seem clear to me that the government in this country or around the world will happily endorse alternatives to the current banking situation like bank on yourself or full reserve banking, which means we will continue to have to have banking crises like the one we're going through right now. So while I do encourage people to continue to vote and make your voice heard, remember that every dollar you have is a vote as well. The good news is, good news, you can opt out of the current system, not 30 years from now, not when your grandkids are finally old enough, but today. Today, you can opt out of the current banking system. So where is it written that you have to put all your money into somebody else's bank? I'm not aware of any law that tells me, forces me, that I have to use somebody else's bank to store my wealth. So the good news is that one by one, family by family, business by business, people are already opting out of fractional reserve banking with the majority of their wealth. They're voting with their feet and with their dollars to build real wealth outside of Wall Street, outside of the banking system. There has never been a better time to talk about how bank on yourself type whole life policies fit within the larger framework of the financial system. The global financial system will continue to drink from the punch bowl, the spiked punch bowl of money creation and loose lending practices. But meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of families are taking up the gauntlet to become their own federal reserve, their own source of financing, if you will. Now, let me close with a client story here. So a client of mine recently said she had had a relationship with a credit union, a regular wonderful credit union for over 27 years and it seemed like a good relationship for decades never once overdrafting on their bank accounts regularly making deposits playing by the bank's rules but once just once during a move across country they made one little mistake and they overdrew from their bank account the client said that it was such a burden to rectify the problem she said it was like moving heaven and earth just to fix the overdraft fee She complained to me that relationships, she said, should always be reciprocal. That's true in friendship. It's true in marriage. It's true in business. And it should be the same with your bank. And candidly, that's what I see with Bank on Yourself. Remember, Bank on Yourself type whole life insurance is issued by a mutually owned life insurance company. Mutually owned. That means it's owned by the policyholders. So the life insurance company has interests aligned with yours. If you are the policyholder at that company, you're an owner of that company. Your relationship with your bank, by its very nature, by its very nature, is not aligned. The bank's job is to create profit for the bank and the shareholders of that bank. Even a member-owned credit union, while it's certainly a lot like a mutually-owned life insurance company, and it's certainly better than a mega bank in terms of your alignment, it has to compete in the broken system of fractional reserve banking, but keeping your money in your bank on yourself policy doesn't mean it has to stay there forever. Remember, when you see a banking crisis and you see banks having to cut off lending, when you see interest rates on HELOCs rising, I've seen car loans north of ten percent and home equity lines of credit north of eleven and twelve percent. When these sorts of things happen, we don't just run and hide into our whole life policies. No we see opportunity. We can bank on the crisis. And we're seeing clients do that all the time. Just one little example as we wrap up. We have clients, for example, using their policies for something called bridge loan investing. Bridge loans are typically short-term loans where you provide temporary financing for a borrower until more permanent financing solutions can be arranged. So this typically is used in real estate transactions when, say, a buyer Of a piece of real estate needs to close on a property today or right now before they sell another property that they might have in their portfolio so generally the loan that you might lend out to this buyer of real estate might be for 90 or 120 days maybe up to six months at the long end and the loan interest rate that you might lend on bridge loans might be six percent ten percent twelve percent now of course this type of investing is not guaranteed but when you couple bridge loan portfolios and loan investing like that with your bank on your designed whole life policy loans, you're essentially borrowing from your policy and lending it out to people or institutions who would then pay you back with interest. You continuously get compound growth on your money since, don't forget, the policy continues to grow even on the capital you've borrowed. And as a private lender, in this case for bridge loans, you can receive interest on the money you loaned out. What an incredible opportunity. To me, my bold opinion is that you do not have to wait for some act of Congress for some law to be passed. You can choose right now, today, to opt out of the system and begin building a family bank. Now, of course, I'm not talking literally about an FDIC-insured bank, thank goodness. I'm talking about the kind of bank in the same way you have a food bank or a snow bank, a pool or a reserve of capital that your family can depend on, can borrow from, When you have a bank on yourself designed whole life insurance policy, you already have a source of capital, a contingency fund that you can use for any of the things that you might need in your life. And beyond that, you can lend it out for those who are asking for loans. For me, it's a great option for folks who are looking to opt out of this banking system. And I hope this has been, you know, hopefully an inspiring and maybe idea provoking strategy for you. So if this is something you'd like to dig into further, please reach out to our team at Not Your Average Financial Podcast and click on the button that says request a meeting. We'd be happy to sit down, answer your questions about what's going on in the world of banks and how you can one by one, family by family, opt out of that system and move to something much more stable, secure, and sane. So thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future.